Both poetry and storytelling have their origins in oral forms of culture, in the spoken word, long before literature was written down and was printed. And we get a reminder of this in literary tradition itself, in, if you like, the conventions of poetry. In William Blake's Songs of Innocence and Experience from 1794, the opening poem begins like this. Hear the voice of the bard, who present, past and future sees, whose ears have heard the holy word that walked among the ancient trees. These lines suggest that to become a reader of Blake's poem is, in a sense, to be a listener in the first instance, and that the poet himself, who's likened to a mystical figure from oral tradition, is also a kind of listener who receives divine inspiration. So to be a poet is to be open to other voices, to allow one's own voice to mix and mingle with forces outside oneself, and to be receptive to voice in order to produce one's own creative expression. I'm Dr Peter Garrett from the Department of English Studies at Durham University, where I'm a lecturer in 19th century literature. Charles Dickens is an especially fascinating writer to consider in relation to voices, not because he's an especially psychological novelist in the way that Eliot or Henry James are generally seen as being, but more because voice plays such an important role in the way that he develops character. In fact, Dickens described his own way of writing as a process of allowing characters' voices to come to him. So rather than voluntarily thinking them up, he said that characters in certain situations would speak to him and he would transcribe their speech and that's how their characters would be built. And one extreme example of this was the invention of a well-known character, Mrs Gamp, in his novel Martin Chuzzlewit. Mrs Gamp, it is said in anecdotes about Dickens, came to him with such intensity that she acquired a kind of existence of her own, a kind of autonomy. She lived off the page and forced her voice upon him when, for example, he was in church and she would apparently laugh at him. If Dickens' characters seem to begin their life of their own volition in his head, then it's perhaps no exaggeration to say that by the end of his life, they'd taken on such a kind of autonomous force that they contributed to Dickens's exhaustion. And this was because he performed the voices of his characters on many reading tours around Britain, Ireland and the United States during the 1850s and 1860s. The energy of the performance all stemmed from his ability to vocally perform and to somehow inhabit the characters. It was as if in some way he was channeling the famous characters who he'd invented. And one of the most popular scenes was the scene from Oliver Twist, in which the prostitute Nancy is murdered by Bill Sykes. And in his last ever performance, he did this scene whilst almost himself barely able to muster his own voice because he was so exhausted. My name's Patricia Waugh and I'm a professor in the English department at Durham. 
So many writers have written about their own voice hearing experiences, such as Dickens, Virginia Woolf, uh, William Blake, Evelyn Waugh, Muriel Spark, Hilary Mantel. And it's interesting that some of the research that's been done on writers shows that it seems to be most common with novelists. And I think it's partly perhaps because novelists have to sustain this world. They have to build a world. And so a writer like Virginia Woolf said that she worked very much by what she called scene making, where her memory worked so vividly that she could actually put herself in a scene as if it existed, as it felt like the present. It was so vivid. And she said once she's made the world, the people start coming into it. The voices start appearing and she starts building them into characters. Um, And again and again in her diaries and in her various memoirs, she talks about this problem of of the difficulty of keeping the two worlds connected. And so there's a kind of shock when she returns to the real world. The novel To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf was published in 1927. And in a sense, it's a work of mourning. It's about coming to terms with the deaths of her mother and her father and the fact that her first kind of psychotic breakdown when she was 13 happened after her mother's death and that's when she started hearing voices. And and so there is a lot in that novel about people thinking and hearing voices. So she has this character called Lily Briscoe who's a kind of surrogate for herself but she makes her a painter. And... There's a character called Charles Townsley, and he announces one day that women can't write and women can't paint. And Lily hears this voice every time she picks up her brush. Women can't write, women can't paint. And that is precisely what people do. We talk to ourselves all the time in our heads, and if we've absorbed negative voices, criticism, we can hear these niggly little voices going on. And it's kind of Virginia Woolf's way of showing that we actually think by internalising these dialogic voices from outside. And then they become part of us. And I think she saw the novels as ways in which she could split up distressing emotions and kind of build them into characters. And interestingly, it's almost as if she hit on one of the basic methods for working with distressed voice hearers through dialogue and avatar therapy, which is to encourage the voice hearer to kind of develop the voice into a character so that the voice hearer can start to have a relationship with that character, can start to be able to talk on equal terms with the character. Virginia Woolf never used stream of consciousness. In eight out of her nine novels, she used free and direct discourse. And... What free and direct discourse is, really, is it's the blending of two voices. So it's the voice of a narrator, but where that voice mingles or blends with or moves in and out of the voice of a character. And often you can work it out by adverbs. I mean, there's a moment in the dinner party where all the characters come together into the lighthouse, and Mrs Ramsay's serving up this berth on daub, and um, Mrs Ramsay thinks to herself just now, she thought, dissociating herself from the moment while they were talking of boots. She helped Mr Banks to one tender piece more. It partook of eternity. Now, that's an interesting sentence because, on the one hand, we feel, yes, she's drawing them all together, she's doing something terribly important, she's, she's, she's being the mother figure. 
But at the same time, she's serving a guest a piece of meat and she's associating it with eternity. And so there's something kind of ridiculous about her at the same time that there's something heartwarming. And so by using free and direct discourse, Virginia Woolf can actually, I think, reveal the profound ambivalence we often have about people close to us. I'm Marco Vernini. I'm a postdoctoral research associate in the English department in uh, Durham University. And I'm now working on a book on Samuel Beckett and cognition. We start to find voices in Beckett's work with some short stories in the 1940s. And then the voices become prominent in what is now called the trilogy, the three novels he wrote in French, Malloy, Malone Dies and The Unnameable. And from that point onward, chronologically speaking, uh, voices are everywhere. Most of the voices in Beckett's work have an alien quality, by which I mean that at the same time, the voices are inhabiting the characters, but we are told they do not belong to the character. And another key crucial feature of Beckett's voices is the independent agency, which means that voices have a real agency and beliefs and intentions that are independent from the character's ones. For example, in Malloy, published in 1951, but it's not a sound like other sounds that you listen to when you choose and can sometimes silence by going away or stopping your ears. No, but it is a sound which begins to rustle in your head without your knowing how or why. It's with your head you hear it, not your ears. You can't stop it, but it stops itself when it chooses. The voices are usually telling the characters what to do and what to remember, what to believe or think, and this kind of commanding attitude is perceived constantly as distressing or tormenting. The most common interpretations uh, have been revolving around the idea that Beckett was rendering a, a wide range of mental illnesses. And I like to complement uh, the pathological framework of interpretation by suggesting that there is a more direct natural experience. And by this, I mean, he could have referred to the little voice in our head in, in a speech. I like to relate the problem of inner speech in Beckett to the problem of the narrative construction of ourself, which is known in cognitive science and philosophy of mind as the paradox of the narrative self, because there is a problem since we are at the same time the author, the narrator and the character in the story. And this links to inner speech because we are at the same time producing and listening to the inner narration we conduct through inner speech. An example of a work in which we have only two positions, the narrator and the character as a listener, is Krupp's Last Tape. And in this play, we have a 69 years old man who is going back to memories and a sort of a journal he recorded in a, several tapes. And he's constantly selecting and picking tapes from his past and listening to his younger voice and his younger self. So in a way, he's a sort of specialized or technologically rendered idea of how inner speech work, in which we are listening and producing. Other times we have all the three positions and um, more explicitly stated as an author, narrator and a character, as in uh, company. And in company is the story of a voice coming to a silent character lying in the dark. And... So it's a very peculiar text in a way because we have from the very beginning instructions about the use of pronouns in the text. 
Cognitive Science Today is starting to suggest links between inner speech and an auditory hallucination and anyway starting to analyze the structure of the narrative construction of ourselves and uh, I think Beckett in a way was exploring the problem already in a literary way so I think literature should be considered as an autonomous field of exploration and uh, cognitive science should look at some literary writers like Beckett who I think have devised or shaped models of exploration of cognition that we can look at as proper scientific endeavors.